Welcome to the Pardes Parsha podcast. My name is Tzvi Hirschfield, and I have the distinct privilege and pleasure of discussing the profound analysis and deep insights into the Parsha from my wonderful colleagues at the Pardes Institute. So glad you could join us. Hello, everyone. So glad that you're with us. We have a challenging topic, but we have a guest who's up to any challenge. Our topic is Yom Kippur, not an easy day for many of us. So I am thrilled to welcome back Rabbi Brent Spodek, famous Pardes alum, rabbi of upstate New York and many other talents and gifts and relationship counseling and all sorts of things he brings to the world, who is going to help us sort of navigate Yom Kippur with some insight. Welcome, Brent. Thank you, Tzvi. It is such a delight to be learning with you again on the internet. I'm thrilled to have the opportunity, even though it's through Zoom. I did have a chance to spend some time with you in person at the Pardes Alumni Retreat, but here we are back on Zoom. So please share with us. It's a challenging day, Yom Kippur, and the range is incredible. You know, the mission describes it as one of the happiest days in the Jewish calendar. On the other hand, it's a day accompanied by a lot of challenge, a lot of difficulty, a lot of hard work, a lot of praying for some of us, a lot of words coming out of our mouth, a lot of tunes. We're confronted with our community. We're confronted with family. We're confronted with our own foibles. It's a tough day. It is. There's a lot going on. And there's, of course, just the communal aspect. In my synagogue, and I suspect in any synagogue anywhere, Yom Kippur is when everybody shows up. It's also the biggest gathering day of the community, right? So there's the internal work, the interpersonal work, and also the communal work of just seeing people who maybe you haven't seen since last Yom Kippur. Seeing them, or even worse, having the way they sing certain tunes out of tune, driving you crazy, or this one, you know, is making noise, this one's talking to his friend, this one brings the unruly child, and suddenly all of our personal work is being tested. I'm assuming that happens in your shul as well. Absolutely. Okay, so I noticed in what you sent to me that you want to focus on the story of Jonah. So please walk us through, in addition to the fact we read it at the Haftorah of Mincha, why do you think this story is so important and how do you feel it helps us learn something we need to learn as we approach Yom Kippur? Sure. Well, part of what I find so compelling about the story of Jonah is the character of Jonah, right? He is at once called to high religious, high spiritual tasks, right? I mean, he is called by the Holy One to be a prophet. It's hard to imagine a more intimate relationship with the Holy One than that. On the other hand, he's so resistant and cranky and unhappy about this mission in ways that I confess I feel very, very resonate with me. The sense of, on the one hand, feeling deeply called to this spiritual mission, on the other hand of, oh my God, get me away from this. I don't want anything to do with this. This is just lunacy, right? And I feel and I confess empathize with that strong mixed feelings that Yonah brings to it. But I think actually diving into some of the particulars of the Yonah story actually helps us understand what it is we might be trying to do on Yom Kippur, both individually and nationally as a people. So there is certainly a puzzle, right? The fact that it is a book of prophecy that has almost no prophecy in it, right? I think Yonah's whole line to the people of Nineveh is like a one sentence, you know, Nineveh is going to be destroyed in 30 days or whatever the message is. That's the sum total of the prophetic message. The rest of this book of prophecy is really about this prophet. And what I hear you suggesting is there is something about his journey 
and he certainly goes on a journey. And what he's asked to do and his resistance to that, that's where our takeaway is to be found. I think so. And I think it's instructive both how he's called and what he's called specifically to do, right? It is the central book of the central Jewish holiday. But in some ways, the book isn't exactly about the Jewish people, though, of course, it is also about the Jewish people. Well, that's one of the stunners, right? This is a prophet who doesn't seem to be sent to speak to the Jewish people. He's being sent to speak to Nineveh, this far-off city of which we have been told very little. There's even a debate if it means the ancient Nineveh or where it might be located. And he's being sent, and we don't even know why at the beginning, right? He's being sent there, and that is sort of the heart of the story. Why doesn't Jonah want to go? I want to get to that question, why doesn't Jonah want to go? But first, let's just sort of jump into the story a little bit of a on the last episode, just so we've got the basic story in our ears. So the book opens basically with the Holy One ordering Yonah to give prophecy, as you said, against Nineveh, right? Yonah refuses and tries to flee. He gets on a ship, he goes across the ocean, right? The ocean rises up, there's a storm that's gonna overthrow the boat. He gets thrown overboard of his own volition, right? The sea calms down, he famously takes refuge in the belly of a fish, of a whale, right? And there, right, he relents and promises to the Holy One. He says, okay, I'm going to go to Nineveh. He goes to Nineveh, and as you say, he says basically one line. In 40 days, the city's going to be overthrown. And in like the most successful prophecy drasha ever, right, Isaiah's got thousands and thousands of words, Jonah comes out and basically gives a tweet. And the people are like, oh my God, that's terrible. And they repent and they spend the next 40 days fasting and repenting and praying, right? They mend their ways. And they save themselves, right? Yonah, like, out of the gate, home run for prophecy. And yet, right? So you might expect that Yonah is feeling really proud of himself. He's like, hey, I gave prophecy. The people repented. God's not going to destroy them. That's great. I did a great job. Go me. But that's not what happens at all. Yonah is furious, basically, right? And the book ends with Yonah complaining that God didn't destroy the city of Nineveh and all that it happens, right? Which seems like a very odd complaint, right? Yonah didn't want to be sent on the mission. And then when the mission succeeded, he was unhappy about that. What gives? You could read it almost. There's like a childlike take that he's upset because he's proven to be a liar, right? He predicts the destruction. It doesn't happen. But that reading never really sat with me. He says to God, I knew you were compassionate. I knew you would relent. I knew this would happen. And you could make the case that he's bothered theologically, that God doesn't punish and that God doesn't follow through. But that also is a challenge because if he knows the book of Exodus and the book of Bamidbar and so on, he's got plenty of examples of God relenting and not punishing and not delivering the horrible threat that's put out there. So the whole thing is really a puzzle why is he so upset? It is. And I think part of it is understanding that we're not actually showing up on Yom Kippur. We're in Sefer Yonah, we're not actually showing up at the first act. The prophet Yonah actually appears prior to the book of Yonah. He appears back in 2 Kings in chapter 14, right? And he is the court prophet, basically, of Yervo ben Yoash right, who was the king of the northern kingdom. Now, Yervon ben Yosh is a interesting character. He wasn't pious. He didn't care for the poor, right? The text says explicitly, right? He did what was 
wrong or evil or wicked in the eyes of the Holy One. He's this king who Amos, another contemporary of the same time, when Amos is railing against the king trampling on the heads of the poor, this is the king he's talking about, Yeravon ben Yoash. And who is Yeravon ben Yoash's court prophet? It's Yonah. It's the same Yonah we get in Safer Yonah. So now, seeing Yonah not just as a guy, not just as a prophet, not just as a Jew, but a member of the court, of the administration, if you will, of this wicked but very powerful king. He was king for 41 years. He expanded and extended the kingdom of Israel larger than it had been since the days of King Solomon. So he's a success, right? He's a national political success story, but he is spiritually corrupt and his values are bad. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I think whether you call him a success or a failure depends entirely on which lens you look at him through. We also don't know what Yonah is telling him. Is Yonah warning him? Is Yonah the voice of saying, you're spiritually corrupt, this shouldn't be happening? You know, his role there, I guess, is we don't know. He's just mentioned, but we don't know what he says. Right. And there are some voices, notably Rav Yosef Kaspi, who says that it's not the same Yonah, but most of the Mepharshim think it is the same Yonah. And it also makes sense because it's the same Nineveh, right? It's the same Assyrian kingdom that's at play here. And what Yonah is, I think, struggling with in ways that perhaps resonate for all of us today is trying to figure out, wait a minute, am I loyal to Israel or am I loyal to God? Right? I have been the prophet of the king of Israel for a long time. I've been, in some way or another, his loyal servant, which doesn't mean he wasn't critiquing him. He wasn't the adult in the room. He wasn't the voice saying, no, don't do this. But one way or the other, his path, Yonah's path, was through a nationalist king, a national leader. But looked at through the eyes of the Holy One, it's not clear that Yeravom ben Yosh is a good guy. In fact, the text says pretty clearly he's seen as wicked, or at the very least his actions are seen as wicked in the eyes of God. So, I mean, just the fact that if Dinve is the Assyrian kingdom, right, and we know, as those who read the end of the story, that the northern kingdom of Israel is going to be annihilated by Ashur, and that's where the ten tribes go off to never be heard from again. So being sent to Ninve, if I understand your read correctly, to be a prophet to save the future destroyers of, you know, half the Jewish people is a terrible place for Yonah to be. I have a lot of empathy with Yonah in this reading, and I don't have clarity on how he could have done this differently, right? How does he remain loyal to his people, to his king, to his community, to his country, while at the same time trying to listen to a universal God who's calling him, pushing him, demanding him to move to a grander view that Yonah, as a human being, is saying, I don't operate at that level. I love my people most. Well, I guess one could feel that problem, right? In other words, especially if by the people of Nineveh listening to Yonah, they make the Jewish people look that worse. As you were saying, we've had prophets for centuries at this point telling the people to change their ways. None of them are successful. The people don't change. 
Yona takes a one-day stroll into a city that we're told is three days walking large, whispers a sentence, and from the king on down, this massive tshuva project takes hold, and the people repent, and therefore God forgives them. And in God forgiving them, leaves open the future possibility that these will indeed be the conquerors and destroyers of the northern kingdom of Israel. So Yonah is in a terrible bind. I don't know that there's an easy resolution there, right? Yonah is in this terrible bind because he's not God, right? None of us are God. Yonah lives in a particular time, in a particular place, with particular relations and particular commitments, and he lives and loves in those commitments. That's how he understands the world, right? He only experiences Nineveh as, as enemies, as torturers, as conquerors. But the Holy One is pushing him into a different sort of consciousness that not only does he not want to go to, is really, really uncomfortable. Right. I mean, that's how the story finishes. God says, how can I not care about these thousands and thousands of inhabitants of Nineveh? They are my creation. They're also my children, right? That's God's sort of parting question to Yonah. How would you imagine I wouldn't care? But from what you said, like that's God's view of the world. But Yonah ben Amitai has his own view of the world, his own lived experience, And God is basically telling him, listen, as a prophet, you have to rise above that. Your job is not to describe the world the way you want it to be. Your job is to try to push the world in the direction that I want it to be. And that, I think, is a very powerful example of where the role of prophet and the role of just being a person, a regular person with a family and a homeland and a people— is in tremendous tension with each other. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And I think part of what is at play here is empathy. And on the one hand, the challenge of expanding our empathetic range, and on the other hand, the real limits of that. Years ago, I was on a meditation retreat at Auschwitz, and it was in the context of a Zen order, actually. And during one of the meditations, we were invited to cultivate compassion And so the meditation began with having compassion for those who were killed. That, for me, sitting there was easy, right? I'm a Jew at Auschwitz thinking of Jews of literally my family who was killed there, right? So that was easy to have empathy for them. But then as we went on, the circle of people we were invited to have empathy for expanded. The villagers who saw the trains going by, the... American officials who did or didn't act, so on and so forth. And as it got further and further, I felt myself working and very much working to think of the people that were being mentioned as people and think of them as humans in their particular lives, in their particular commitments, and have compassion for them. And then we were ultimately invited to imagine having compassion for the Nazis at Auschwitz. And I felt not just I couldn't do it, I also didn't really want to do it. And I felt the real struggle and limits of that. And ultimately was at peace with my lack of compassion for the Nazis, which sounds like a a funny thing to say, but can also hear that call from the Holy One, who's not a person, right? Saying, I, the Holy One, have compassion for all of my creatures, even the worst of them. And me, as a human being, saying, I want to stretch in that regard. I want to be able to have compassion for more than just me, more than just my children, more than just what's dear to me. 
but I can't stretch that far and still be human. And still feel like you belong to the Jewish people, right? I think what you're saying is it felt like a betrayal to extend compassion to the people who murdered your family. I understand, but you're right. From God's view of the world, who created everything and knows everything, I guess God does have compassion. There's Selim Elohim, even in Nazis somewhere, you know, if you could locate it, and God can still see that. But to ask you to see that, I think, was sort of making you feel that you'd be betraying this other relationship that you have with the Jewish people. You know, I think it's more feeling those dynamics in tension those dynamics in a creative tension. Because on the one hand, right, I'm loyal to the Jewish people, I'm loyal to my people, I'm loyal to the particular loves and commitments and relationships I have living in the world in this body and this circumstances, but also can hear that the Holy One is inviting me to push against that, not to deny it, not to shut it down, not to replace it with some sort of facile universalism that says, I love everybody just as much as I love my own children. But to say, okay, there's who I can have compassion for easily, great. The work of a religious person, the work that God is calling me to do, is wherever that circle is, push it, expand it, extend it. Can I extend it all the way to where God can? No, that's okay. But neither do I have to remain as shut down as where I might be naturally. You know, I feel like there's an echo of this in the story. I always wondered, why does Yonah try to push the sailors to throw him overboard. And I always feel he's trying to paint them as Gentiles in the worst possible light. I think he wants to turn to God and say, these are the people you want me to save? And all those sailors do is keep acting with compassion and kindness to him the whole way through, right? He goes down there to sleep. They don't beat him up. They say, who are you? Where are you from? And then when he tells them you've got no choice, they battle. They battle the ocean. They risk their lives. They don't want to do it. They don't want to do it until Yonah gives them absolutely no choice. He keeps on trying to paint them as wicked. He's desperate to find their wickedness. And instead, what he keeps bumping up against is their natural human goodness and compassion that's extended towards him, which I think is the ironic message that he's desperate to find the evil in those guys, and he keeps on encountering the goodness. And I think it really undermines his whole mission in a certain way to prove that the Jewish people aren't so bad, and the people who are enemies are worse, and God should be taking our side. And it really undermines a lot of that in a very interesting way. Well, I think I want to draw a a distinction between two things you just said that I think is actually at the heart of this. It's the difference between compassion and God being on their side. And I think you're right, and I'm really compelled by your reading of what Yona is doing with the sailors on the ship. And I know when I get caught up in my own Mishigas, which is pretty regularly, it's very easy for me to paint whoever it is I'm having the slightest conflict with as the worst. It could be, you know, my beloved wife, my beloved children, right? In a moment of conflict, oh my God, they're the worst. And I feel like, okay, obviously with family, that's a moment that flashes and then passes. But in other conflicts, and it doesn't have to be massive geopolitical conflicts, in everyday conflicts, we're inclined to see the people we're in tension with in a negative light. And this text is saying, see them compassionately which is not the same thing as give up your claim or get on their side, but see them compassionately. Can you see them as a human being, right? And the answer might be, no, I can't, but the challenge is to try to. So what would you say, why are we reading this book on Yom Kippur in particular? 
This is a powerful message that works, I think, all the time. Why do you think we're working on this message now? The message, as I understand you're saying, is to figure out a way to step or at least push the boundaries of our parochial or familial loyalties and this very black and white, good versus evil type of paradigm to try to extend our sense of all others as being, you know, worthy of God creating them and having the Tzalem Elohim in them. Why do you think that's important for our Yom Kippur? If we think seriously about the work of tshuva, there can be a real binary thinking, right? One way of thinking is a thinking of, oh my God, I am the worst. I have done so much harm in so many relationships. I'm the worst and a real self-lacerating mindset, which in many ways is really an abdication of responsibility, right? Once you start going on about how bad you are, all you're doing is inviting someone, maybe yourself, to be like, no, no, you're not that bad, right? To be reassuring. The other extreme is to say, oh, the person I'm in conflict with, they're that bad, right? And Yom Kippur is full of families where there's major tension in a family. Somebody hasn't spoken in years because of a disagreement about money 20 years ago or a you know, snubbed invitation to a wedding or whatever it might be. And we paint them as enemies. Right? And these feuds can exist for a long, long time in our lives and in families. And we come to Yom Kippur, and I feel like part of what Sefer Yonah is coming to say, and part of what the reason it's there is saying, look, if Yonah could be pushed to have sympathy, give prophecy, facilitate the tshuva of people who are literally trying to kill him, maybe you could cultivate a little compassion for your sister-in-law who's a little uptight at Thanksgiving dinner. But even more so, even when it feels justified, even when you feel it's a me or them situation, as Yonah may have indeed felt, he's still being asked to do what God wants him to do and offer the people of Nineveh the opportunity to do tshuva and to change and transform. And I think that it's sort of an easier call when we're arguing over something petty or when we can at least be aware of the pettiness. I think it's a whole other level when you really feel that there is something important to you that's at stake, and that by relenting, are you weakening yourself, or are you giving up on something that you really care about? Well, I wonder if the question of relenting is the only framework. And I'm thinking of a very foolish example here, but I'm going to share it, perhaps pointing to something else. A while ago, it was a few years ago, I was at the lake house of a friend of mine who's actually a fellow Pardes alum, a dear friend of mine from when we were both students of Pardes 20 plus years ago. And our sons were playing in the water. And for a while it was fine. The boys were playing, me and Ben were sitting and talking. But then the boys started squabbling. And we we're like, all right, it's time to get out of the water. But it wasn't. Right? We went over and talked to them, and what was going on is one of the boys wanted to get out of the water, one of the boys wanted to stay in the water, and they were seven, and so they were fighting. Get in, stay out. And I simply asked them, why do you want to get out? Why do you want to stay in? Well, one of them wanted to get out because he was bored and wanted to play football, and one of them wanted to stay in because he was hot and it was cooler in the water. So, voila, now they're playing football in the water. Everybody's happy. Now, this is obviously a silly and very lightweight example, but coming at it from the framework of conflict, either we stay in the water or we get out, there was going to be a winner and a loser. And the sense of if I give anything to my chavruta, to my partner, to the person I'm fighting with, I'm going to diminish my position. But actually, with just the tiniest bit of empathy, why do you want that? 
just why do you want that? I'm not going to assume you're a bad person or an evil person. Why do you want that? Oh, when I hear the reason why you want that, I can relate to that. And in fact, perhaps we can come up with a solution that meets both of our needs. Now, that's not always the case. I was going to say, Yona doesn't have that option, really. If I'm Yona right now and I want to take his side, the compassion he's going to show Nineveh is going to potentially the destruction of his own people. In other words, there is no neat, elegant way that everyone gets what they want, that the rise of Nineveh will ultimately yield a very serious problem for the Jewish people. Now, of course, you could argue if God's going to punish the Jewish people, he doesn't need Nineveh or the Assyrians to do it. God can figure out some way to punish them. God has lots of options on the table for that. But I still think that Yonah's dilemma of where does my loyalty lie, where are my priorities, what comes first for me, is a very live issue for a lot of us. This idea of I'm committed to my family, I'm committed to my people no matter what, versus this sense of I'm in pursuit of certain higher values. And sometimes those values will align me with where my people are, and sometimes they won't. That's right. And that's difficult. And the stakes in a political arena are not to be understated. I'm reminded there was a dialogue in letters between Martin Buber and Mahatma Gandhi, where in essence, Gandhi, when asked about the Nazis, was like, that's terrible they should be practicing nonviolence resistance. And Buber wrote back in short, you know, Honorable Mahatma Gandhi, you're fighting the British who have consciences which can be pricked. We are fighting the Nazis who have no such consciences. And I think about that and that sense of what the stakes are in extreme examples, in the situations that Buber was talking about that we're so aware of on the far end of the 20th century and that Yona was facing as well. And I think that there are some real difficult and not easily answered questions in the geopolitical arena, in the situations where our lives are literally on the line. But part of what I think Yona is highlighting here is how extreme and unusual those cases are, and that most of the conflicts we're in, most of the tensions that people endure in their lives are not with Nazis, are not with Assyrians. We come with that black and white thinking and maybe God is saying, even in those political arenas, that black and white thinking doesn't serve you. I'm going to maybe be slightly agnostic on that question, but in anything short of those life and death situations, dealing with anybody short of a literal Nazi, you'd be well served to cultivate compassion, even as you have to hold your ground. And especially when you think that our ground is so important, right? Most of us don't think that our position is just suits us. We think our position is the just and moral one, and therefore the one who disagrees is obviously evil. And your point is that that type of black and white thinking is probably what gets us into a lot of trouble in the first place. And of course, Yona has the benefit of God telling him, I'm being very clear with you with what I want from you, right? And I'm telling you that you got to put your other stuff aside and go do this mission. What I hear you saying is that's our battle on Yom Kippur, is to not only lean into the areas that are easier where there is agreement, but to find compassion and forgiveness towards ourselves and others, even when it feels that there are competing values or tensions on the line, and to somehow push through. Absolutely. You know, I think the other big challenge that you've put out there for us is I think for a lot of people, we do Yom Kippur by showing up. You know, and I think that's what you reflect on early on. Everybody comes, or I'm sure your shul fills up because everybody comes. And a lot of people, I think, come away with the idea that they did it 
because they showed up. And I don't want to diminish the value of showing up. Showing up counts. And it's important that people show up. But I think what you're saying is showing up is just the beginning of where we have to work and invest. Absolutely. At some point after I spent some time in Israel and I was comfortable with Hebrew and the liturgy, I was preparing to go to Yom Kippur services and, you know, going to a more traditional minion. We're going to be davening all day. It was going to be a very intensive thing. And I was on the phone with my mother prior to Yom Kippur. And my mom doesn't come from that sort of traditional background and was asking about coming with me. And I was saying, you know, I'm not sure you're really going to like it. It's going to be all day. It's going to be in Hebrew. It's going to be sort of intense. I'm not sure it's the right thing. And my wonderful and thankfully wise wife interjects for a moment and asks me to put my mom on hold. I'm like, all right, hold on, mom. I'm like, yeah, what's up? And my wife says, I just want to make sure I'm understanding this right. Your mom wants to spend Yom Kippur with you. And you're saying, mom, don't come and spend Yom Kippur with me so I can be in the synagogue repenting about the ways I've fallen short in my relationships with human beings like you. And then my wife delivers the kicker. You might be missing the point of this entire exercise. Yeah, I hate when wives are smart and correct like that. <laughs> it happens to me all the time. But that sense of like, right, the point isn't showing up. The point isn't even mastering the liturgy. The point is doing tshuva with the people we love. And all of everything else we're doing is trying to facilitate doing that. And I think that's what Yona's trying to do as well. The broader point is it's not only about affiliation, right? Our Jewish identity is not only so we have the card in our wallet that says, I identify as a Jew. Again, not to minimize that. That's critically important. And I love it when people proudly identify as a member of the Jewish people, but... On the table, of course, is so what does an identity mean? What are the values? What is the way of living? What is the way that we work on ourselves that needs to be part of that uh, identity? And that's where a lot of the hard work really begins. That's beyond showing up is then the work that we're going to do. Absolutely. Okay. Well, as usual, you've challenged us to be better people, which, of course, I'm resentful of, but <laughs> accept the fact that that is the work to be done. I really appreciate it. I hope all of you listening you know, got inspired to do the work and grow and challenge yourself. And I think what Brent is telling you is it's like a workout. If it's too easy, then you're not doing something you need to be doing. So if it feels difficult and challenging and a little painful sometimes, Brent would tell you, you're on the right track. You're getting the most out of your Yom Kippur. He's nodding vigorously. Brent, first of all, thank you so much again for your wisdom and your time. Thank you for having me. Love having you. And all of you, we want to wish on from Brent and myself and all of the Pardes community and everyone else, of course, uh, we want to wish you an easy fast and a meaningful Yom Kippur and Gamar Chatimatova and look forward to learning more Torah with uh, you in the future. Indeed, indeed. Gamar Chatimatova. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to the Pardes Parsha podcast recorded here at Nomi Studios in Jerusalem. We hope you enjoyed this week's episode and gained some new insights and perspectives on the Torah portion. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast on your favorite streaming platform and leave us a five-star review if you enjoyed the episode. Your feedback helps us reach more people with these important conversations. Thanks again for listening, and we look forward to exploring the Torah with you again next week on the Pardes Parsha podcast. Shabbat Shalom.